Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 40, and my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Scott Gardner. How's it going, man? It's going great. I'm fantastic and ready to... I'm really excited about the Marvel book that I brought today, so... Ah, cool. Well, I am excited about what I brought today, because I'm turning the tables on you, my friend. <laughs> oh, God. Because you purposely <laughs> tried to wind me up last time around with, yeah. with what you brought to the table, so this time, I just figured that turnabout was fair play, so... But first off, we've got feedback. Feedback. I'm really excited about that. I am too. I'm very excited about that. Now, first off, right out of the gate, I must apologize to our first feedbacker because I've had these in my possession for quite a while, and I know it's probably rude to have held on to them, but he was the sole person giving me any sort of feedback at all, so I I just kind of let them build up because I was waiting to get more. So first piece of feedback is from our good buddy uh, Billy Hogan who does the Superman fan podcast yay Billy this one's going back a ways this is back to episode 26 he says uh, hi Scott he says enjoyed your episode with Michael Bailey he's always a great guy to to have talked to about comics I subscribe to both views and from crisis to crisis while I haven't read much of the freedom fighters I have to agree that it was a shame they met their end the way they did in infinite crisis I could not agree more Uh, the worst one for me was Sue Dibney in identity crisis I almost didn't read the miniseries when I first looked through the issue it was such a kick in the gut I always have uh, excuse me I always enjoy the great conversations you have with your guest hosts about comic books Billy Hogan Thank you, Billy. And I again, I apologize. It took me so very long to uh, to get to that. But thank you very much for writing in on that. And um, in case I have not said this or said it enough, we will continue to have guests on the show. Um, just be patient with us, guys. We, we want to gain our footing. We want to gain our momentum. And then at some point, you know, we're going to do special segments and, and things like that. We will have guests come in and... Uh, but I want them to be special, you know. I want uh, the episodes. I mean, I want the episodes to be special when we have guests and, and really do it upright. But uh, continue uh, looking forward to that. We got one more from Billy Hogan. Um, this one is going back a ways as well. Uh, he says in this one, "Hi Scott." He says, "Your Disney comic reminded me of the Disney magazine that was distributed through the Gulf Oil gas stations in the late '60s or early '70s. It had some comic stories in it as well as uh, kids' magazines articles." My favorite features were the How to Draw Disney Characters page. I think I had issues that featured How to Draw Mickey, Donald, Goofy, and Chip and Dale. Great show as always, Billy Hogan. And I think that was... Why would you want to draw Chip and Dale? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, I was never big on 
any of the Disney characters, really. I mean, I never read Disney comics growing up or anything like that, but since becoming such a, a big Disney Parks fan, I've collected just some odds and ends Disney books. And it turns out, I guess, you know, I have a very limited knowledge of, like, non-superhero comics, I must say, but uh, especially Disney stuff. But Chip and Dale were, like, a big deal in the comics. I mean, they've had a lot of comics in different appearances and one-shots and series and everything, so... Well, it comes from the fact that, and I hate to derail you, but the uh, the, the Rescue Rangers were my least favorite part of the <laughs> Disney afternoon. Right. Because I watched that even going into junior high and high school. Uh, <laughs> So, I guess I guess my bias comes from there. <laughs> but no, they. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But yes, yeah, not long ago, I I bought a handful of of Disney books, and uh, it had all this information in it about dis- different Disney stuff. And yeah, they've they're they're a big deal in in that world. And I don't quite get the whole thing with the squirrels. But <laughs> I don't know. Not not my bag. I must say. Our next one comes from our buddy uh, Joshua Baker, and he says, Hey guys, just wanted to stop by and say, hey, just a little feedback for you. I'm comfortable with Michael co-hosting. He's really good at what he does and compliments Scott quite well. Uh, The only thing that rubs me the wrong way, and that sounds harsher than it actually is, just couldn't think of another way to describe it, he says, is the ongoing Hulk co-review. It takes away from the random back-issue appeal. Now, I know you guys are busy, but maybe a 45-minute Hulk cast uh, that you can put up on a uh, Tuesday? Just throwing it out there, if only to further feed my desire for the goodbye quote of see you next Tuesday, but that's just me. Uh, but that's just me again. I dig the show. Take care. Josh Baker. I don't know. What do you think about that? I don't know. I, I kind of like covering it. Mm-hmm. I guess if I guess if eno- enough people don't like it, you know, you really got to take a take a hard look at it, and that's not to de- demean Josh's opinion because I like Josh. Right, absolutely. We did the Indiana Jones thing mm-hmm. uh, together and had a lot of fun doing that. But uh, you know, we'll just see how it goes. You know, I, I you know we're we're this is going to be the third episode that we're going to be doing it, so I think we're still kind of too early into it to go. Ah, maybe we need to scrap this. Maybe at the right. end of the burn run. If enough people are like, you know, we really don't like that, just do the two comics. It's something we should consider further. Right. Well, I had three three thoughts on it. The first being, I just found out there actually is a Hulk cast. I, I just saw it the other day somewhere or other. I, I, I could be wrong on the name, but I think it's called the Incredible Hulk cast. Not sure. Been meaning to give it a, a listen and just hadn't got to it. For one thing, they're covering, like, current day Hulk happenings, which... You know, with apologies to their show, I could give a shit about. I like classic Hulk, so, uh, I, but I will listen just to, to you know, to just see what the show is like. But I figured, you know, at the very least, I could give them a plug. So I don't necessarily want to do a Hulk cast of my own. Secondly, this is a temporary. I mean, the the feature itself, we would like to, it to be a permanent part of the show. But what we're covering in that is only temporary. I mean, that feature will change. As we go on to other things, I mean, yes. For an opener, we're we're just doing the burn stuff, with an option to possibly go further if you guys want us to. Otherwise, we're going to switch and we're going to do something, anything else. You know, that there's an infinite possibility of of options out there of what we might do. The last thing is now I'm aware of John Landis's very famous "See You Next Wednesday," but where does "See You Next Tuesday" come from? 
I'm just curious. So write back in, Josh, and let me know because now you've, you've piqued my interest on that. And let's see, we got one more, and this one is from Jason Trenner. That's a new name to me, so uh, write in and tell us about yourself, Jason. He writes, The FF Confusion Ended. It is not Earth S. This is referring to last episode when I reviewed an issue of Fantastic Four that I really enjoyed but confused the shit out of me. <laughs> and he says, uh, It is not Earth S, the Squadron Supreme Earth. The Earth in that issue is Earth A. So, does this mean that there are actually two alternate Earths? Each with its own president, Nelson Rockefeller. It's possible. I mean, that's Mar- Marvel is a lot is a lot more ambiguous with their multiverse than DC ever was. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, well, this is an alternate Earth where the Sentinels are. You know, you know, you bend them over and and chocolate, you know, spurts out of their heads, <laughs> like clanky the the robots. So, you know, I, I just. It, a lot of people point to Marvel, it's like, well, at least they're not confusing, like that DC comics, you know, with their Earth ah! 1 and their Earth 2 and all that. It's like, are you serious? How many alternate fucking futures do you have? Alright, <laughs> anybody that ever says that, I want to point them to, I, I wish I could quote issue numbers here, and I can't, but when Kitty and Nightcrawler leave X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, that is the what the hell just happened moment for me because I read not long ago I decided I was going to sit down I was going to get up to speed on X-Men and I sat down with Uncanny X-Men whatever 94 I think it is the first like all new all different one read right through and I was determined I was going to read it but I was only going to read that one and then the one that came later the adjectiveless X-Men and that was it I wasn't reading all that other shit. I wasn't reading... I did read some New Mutants, but I wasn't reading, like, X-Force and X-Factor and X-Lax and all those other things. I just wasn't going to read them. So if you only read that one title, Kitty and Nightcrawler just fucking disappear. And they're gone for, like, years. And it's weird. And you get into this other thing, you know, if you start exploring their universe... I don't know where I'm going with this. Long story short... Anybody that says that thing about DC and Marvel and how DC is so much more confusing, yeah, yeah, get into the X books and you'll see just how bullshit. That yeah, is. they went off to Excalibur, yeah. which had a bunch, of, which had the the cross. Uh, I think it's either the cross time or cross something caper, where they went to a bunch of different realities. Right. So, well, I mean, I was <laughs> digging that uh, that Exiles title, but that one right there, that that book was a study in how convoluted all their like alternate earths and alternate timelines and everything was. So yeah, don't give me that argument. It doesn't hold water. (laughs) 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 Lastly, he writes, uh, Oh, and and this is telling us basically where this story panned out. He says, Oh, and Mr. Fantastic and the thing went on a cosmic adventure to regain Reed's powers. And you know, that tickles my brain. I kind of remember that as a kid. I think I have some, or, or at least have read portions of that because don't they go into I think they go into like the negative zone or he says cosmic adventures maybe they just went out into space but I kind of sort of half-ass remember that from when I was a kid he says and they fought a robot that has his own page on the appendix of the Marvel Universe website (laughs) said robot later showed up in Eric Larson's cosmic Wolverine story arc yes the one where Wolverine fights Galactus (laughs) what (laughs) Wolverine fought Galactus? I hope he didn't. And he probably won because he's Wolverine, and that's just how Marvel treats that character. Oh my god. 
Wolverine is the best he is at what he does, and what he does is take on the Devourer of Worlds. There you go. Well, I mean, if they had Batman fight Galactus, he'd probably win, too. It's freaking ridiculous how they write some Well, as long as he has 20 minutes, he's cool. Yeah, exactly. As long as he's got time to to look in the hot move real quick before he he can probably beat him. Oh, for God's sakes. But thank you guys for writing in, all of you. I really, really appreciate it. Keep those cards and letters coming, as they used to say. And uh, I think we're going to get into the next segment of the show. And I can't remember who the hell is supposed to go first here. I am going first. All right, you go first, sir. Run with it. Run with it. So I picked a Marvel book, and we have been going through, as we mentioned, The Incredible Hulk, as done by John Byrne. And that had me kind of interested to kind of relook at, which I don't think is really a proper... You know, term. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, another book that Byrne did for Marvel after his stint on Superman. Mm-hmm. And so I dug out what is probably my favorite issue of his Avengers West Coast run, which I, I have oh, several yeah. issues with. I picked up Avengers West Coast number 50, which has a cover date of a dollar. And it's from November 1989. A cover date of a dollar? You mean a cover oh, co- price? Of cover a price of a dollar and a cover date of November. <laughs> cover date of a dollar and cover price of November 1989. Yes. And this is the righteous return or riotous, excuse me, return of the original Human Torch. I knew there was something special about that issue, and I was trying to remember what it was. I'm sorry, I'll shut up. (laughs) No, that's fine. Has this awesome cover of the Human Torch blowing out of a grave, though I think all Byrne did was kind of take out his page from the last page of Man of Steel number one and trace out (laughs) Superman's flying form and just drew the Human Torch over it. But that's just me being snarky. But this is titled Return of the Hero, that's written by John Byrne and drawn by John Byrne and Mike Macklin. And we open on a woman who's got a bandage on her hand begging the West Coast Avengers for help. And of all people, U.S. agent, who, who was recently put on the team by the government to kind of keep an eye on them, who is normally kind of a prick, because this is right after the whole John Walker as Captain America arc, is the one being nice to her, and, and Wonder Man and all them are kind of commenting on this. And finally, this woman calms down and introduces herself as Anne Raymond, who had a husband named Thomas, who was the partner of the original Human Torch, Toro. And she has come to basically get their help because she thinks she's going crazy because of all of the confusion surrounding his death. And she thought that the vision could help on this because it has recently become kind of public knowledge that the Vision and the Human Torch have some kind of connection. Well, Scarlet Witch kind of goes off on this because she has just gone through the whole deconstruction of the Vision and reassembling him. And she's basically lost her husband because he went from being the emotional android to kind of data, I guess for lack of a better term. And she storms out and the Vision goes to deal with her. And we get back to Anne telling her story of her husband finding out about the Human Torch's death, or the original Human Torch's death, and going to the funeral. And afterwards, he's approached by someone who needed to speak to him concerning Jim Hammond's death. And this guy turns out to be the mad thinker who basically slips <laughs> slips Toro a Mickey and convinces him that he's the original Human Torch. He battles Namor and supposedly dies. So she goes to look for him, 
gets all this information about where the funeral was being held. When she gets to the town, she's told that the cemetery that her husband had told her that he had gone to uh, had not been in use for 30 years. And when she arrived home, there was Namor just standing there on her front steps. It looks like he's been there a while. I don't. I mean, maybe he was there for like a couple days, just hanging out. <laughs> it's a little ambiguous. But she basically said he basically told her. The Mad Thinker did this, and your husband has died. I'm very, very sorry. So the Avengers are trying to make heads or tails of this with her, just to see what's going on, how true her tale is. They agree to help her, which the U.S. agent goes back into prick mode. It's like, why are we buying this? You know, she could be she could be crazy. She could be a villain. So they check in with Namor, who backs up her story, and the fact that Thomas Raymond has disappeared and has never been uh, found, kind of adds weight to the fact that he's probably dead and the Mad Thinker is responsible. So after we get a little side scene involving Tigra, who has been embracing her more feline tendencies lately, and you get an argument between Simon Williams, Wonder Man, and U.S. Agent over this, and U.S. Agent kind of looks like Popeye <laughs> in this scene. It's, it's very bizarre. We get another couple of pages of basically Burns setting up other events in Avengers West Coast. We have a thing where the team is discussing Immortus, who they've recently encountered. There's another quick page where Master Pandemonium is shown, and you get the feeling that, hey, something's going to be happening uh, happening with, as they refer to him later, Master P. <laughs> which Sounds just, like a rapper, doesn't he? It, it is a rapper, actually. <laughs> There is a hip-hop star called Master P. So in that issue, when Iron Man's like, okay, Master P, we're going to take you down, I'm like, someone needs to Photoshop this. (laughs) So three hours later, the Avengers head to Pleasantville, pleasant by name, pleasant by nature. They request of the mayor to exhume uh, the body of where the Human Torch supposedly is. And the mayor's like, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, that, that graveyard's 30 years out of service, and... You know, we don't even know that he's there. So, meanwhile, the other Avengers are where the Human Torch, the original Human Torch, is supposedly buried. And the Vision becomes intangible, checks out the grave, sees that he's actually down there, and everyone's like, so what do we do now? And the Vision, and the Scarlet Witch is like, well, screw all y'all. You know, I'm not bound by human bureaucracy. She uses her magic whoosie what's it hex probability altering thing and suddenly this giant flaming figure bursts out of the ground uh wonder man flies up and follows him we get uh, a, a cut scene to back in california where the babysitter who was watching the vision and scarlet witch's children is running frantically because they have disappeared again just kind of winked out there is a knock at the door and i can just go ahead and reveal this it's agatha harkness who was uh, Scarlet Witch's mentor, essentially, shows up to give her a hand. Uh, Meanwhile, Wonder Man is chasing the original Human Torch around, calms him down, and they fly back to the the ground where you have the meeting of the two androids, where you have Vision shaking hands with the Human Torch, and Jan is all upset because they don't have a camera. So they get back to... Uh, their West Coast HQ, they basically figure out where the confusion, because it was at one point revealed that the vision was made from the body of the original Human Torch. Right. 
And this is the issue that puts that to rest, supposedly, where where they start talking about Frankie Ray, who uh, was Nova, right? Was that her? She became Nova, yes. She became Nova, uh, you know, hooked up with Johnny Storm and then became a Herald of Galactus. Well, it turns out her grandfather was Phineas Horton, who was the man that created the original Human Torch. Right. And while investigating his molds uh, that he made the android out of, uh, she was, like, helping him move some equipment, and accident, barrel full of chemicals, bursts into flames, she gets superpowers, blah, 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 blah. But that basically, when the vision was created, he was created using those molds. So that is why he is so similar to the Human Torch. And they welcome the Torch back to, you know, the land of the living. They even give him an updated version of his costume. It's the same costume. It's the whole red costume with the T-belt. But this one is made by Reed Richards of Unstable Molecules, which, as Jan points out, all of the fashionable heroes are are wearing. <laughs> and this kind of causes him to choke up, and he has that, like, very typical macho man, uh, I think I got something in my eye, to which Wonder Man's like, screw that, it's the, or uh, excuse me, not Wonder Man, Jan, uh, it's like, screw that, it's the 80s, men are allowed to cry now. <laughs> oh, brother. And before they, before they can get too much further into their reunion, they hear this massive sound overhead, and they fly out to see that Iron Man is back, it's this beautiful splash page of John Byrne drawing Iron Man. And I love this issue. I really love this issue. I I am not too hot on Burns' run on Avengers West Coast. I think he did some things with that title that I don't quite agree with. But the artwork was always freaking fantastic. I love the way he draws U.S. Agent. I love that. I like that costume. I don't know about you. I don't know your feelings on U.S. Agent or any of that Captain America storyline. Uh, you know what? I, I want to get into that in, an, in another episode, actually. But uh, in short, I always thought he was kind of a douchebag, to be honest. He is, but it's an interesting character because he is kind of the more douchey version, I guess you could say, of Captain America. Mm-hmm. But he has a really great, he had a really great costume. Mm-hmm. Let me say that. The black and, one? Yeah. And yeah. Burn, yeah, I did like that. And Byrne drew it just about better than anyone. But then again, I like Byrne's Captain America, too. Right. This was Byrne's attempt to kind of reconcile things. That's his move. He likes to make sense of continuity. And there was a bit of a question about, you know, is the Vision the original Human Torch or not? And this kind of put that that to bed. But most of this issue is exposition, but it doesn't feel like that. We're getting caught up on events, but it feels like a a real story. This is a meaty... I mean, for a 50th anniversary issue, it really serves well. Because, you know, usually in an anniversary issue, they look back on how things went and recaps of origins and major events. And I don't get the sense that it's slowed the story down at all. Uh, The artwork is great. I I was never really a big fan of the Vision's all-white look. I always thought that was just kind of bizarre. I know it's because he's now has less emotions than he did before. I have to say that I like that vision better than any other vision, but I'm prejudiced because I own the four-player version of Captain America and the Avengers, the art, the arcade <laughs> game, and that's the vision that's in that game. So <laughs> that's kind of a wacky reason for it. But, but I also thought he had a cooler... I mean, because his whole shtick 
is that he's wraith-like. So I thought he looked more like a wraith if he was all one ghostly pallor, you know? I, I, I kind of thought it was a cool look for him. But, you know, Byrne threw in plot lines that are going to come, that are going to bear fruit in the next couple of issues. And I think he, I think he brought back the Human Torch in fine style. It's too bad that not a whole lot was done with him afterwards. Right. Yeah, he was kind of just not utilized yeah. after that. Yeah, he, I mean, he was in the West Coast Avengers, especially when Roy Thomas took over, but it does, doesn't seem like they ever really took full advantage of that. Uh, my final thing about this issue is I don't know what Marvel was trying. This was a this was an era where Marvel was printing on the cheapest paper humanly possible. Right. And the pages are very, very thin. Uh, this book is yellowing quite nicely, I might add. <laughs> but they tried this coloring effect, and I don't quite know how to describe it, but it made things kind of shiny in places. Right. And it looks kind of cool, but I'm just I'm kind of worried that in the next couple of years that the de- deterioration of this book is just going to make that crap. <laughs> <laughs> but no, re- really enjoyed this book. Really glad that I reread it. Uh, love to see John Byrne drawing just about anything, really. And I have to say, we always give John Byrne a hard time, or I do, and I think you and I have had this discussion that most of his characters look alike. Mm-hmm. But in this issue, everyone had a really distinctive look to them. I liked his stuff in, in this. Uh, to me, something happened to John Byrne after he left Superman. I, I, I've always suspected that somehow his heart went out of comics. But he did have a couple of post-Superman, uh, almost said post-crisis, post-Superman projects that I thought, he still brought the A-game he brought when he did Superman. This was one of them. I thought this was just some extraordinary work by Byrne on this, art-wise, anyway. Yes, the art. The, the story had some issues. The art is absolutely fan-fucking-tastic. Mm-hmm. Now, we talk about the ads all the time. Really and truly, I would like to say that this issue of the Avengers West Coast was brought to you by Nintendo. Because most of the ads on the inside cover, you have, well, it's not Nintendo, but you have a handheld Double Dragon game ad. (laughs) A little inside, you have a Mega Man 2 ad with radical action. And then you have the, they basically devised a wireless remote uh, controller for Nintendo. Got an ad for that. Didn't work worth a shit either. (laughs) You have the Sears catalog ad, you know, with the phone number telling you all the, uh, games you can order and i and i call bullshit on this ad because my parents tried to order that superman game a thousand times <laughs> and it was always on back order turns out it was complete crap the superman one for nintendo yes that game sucked but i wanted it because you know it was superman that that's how i go and uh you have a bionic commando which i did play that was mm-hmm. kind of an awesome game yeah but the one that I wanted to point out for you, Scott, uh, was not the Mr. Bubbles Tub Tales <laughs> ad, because that's kind of creepy. But they have a, a order form for the Star Trek V, the Final Frontier limited, additional, limited Edition collectible figures. I remember those. They were static, unfortunately. They, they and they came so much, with a little background, yeah, but it, it looks kind of so cool. They were figures as they were like little... Like, if you guys remember those uh, Marvel Legends, like little plastic statues from a couple mm-hmm. years back, they had like Galactus and 
couple different ones. Yeah, they were like that, but they were awesome, though. The detail and the paint jobs and everything on them were really, really nice, and unfortunately, I never picked any of them up. But that's me. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm well, I got two ready. things on this one. I'm noticing right on the cover, on the left-hand side, right by the, the Human Torch's, or excuse me, the right-hand side, right by the Human Torch's left hand, is that a statue of the Grim Reaper in a cemetery? Let me look at the issue. Do they put the Grim Reaper in cemeteries? <laughs> Why not? That's it's kind of it's creepy. I that's creepy, man. I would not want to be buried in a cemetery. I wouldn't even want to go visit somebody in a cemetery like that. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's it's not so much being buried there, but visiting. Because when you're buried there, you know, like, are you really going to care? <laughs> no, I think your cares are pretty much over with by that point. And also, now you, I have to take exception to something the Was said. You said that in the 80s, she said it was okay for men to cry. That's yeah. bullshit, man. When I when I had both my legs blown off in the Canadian-American War, man, I never shed a tear. And that's I call horseshit on that whole thing. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. It's the kind of guy I am, I guess. I'm made from a more manly... More stern, or whatever. Come on, the Incredible Hulk TV show, if it taught me nothing, it's that sensitive men can get laid. This so, is true. Because David Banner got more ass than a toilet seat <laughs> uh, on that show. So <laughs> It was the hair. It was the hair. Well, he hooked up with Kim Cattrall, and it seemed like Marky Post. No, that was... Uh, that was no, J- uh, uh, Jack McGee got to hook up with Marky Post from Night Court. I do not remember this at all. Lucky son of a bitch. <laughs> I need to. I need to watch more of that show. I need to dig out more of the of the episodes and watch more of that because I, I find that I'm not as familiar with it in remembrances as I I thought I was. <laughs> now, did you have anything else on your issue? No, no, that was it. I was done. That was a good pick because I did yeah. enjoy that series very much until he just up and abandoned it. Um. All right. So I. This time around, I have a DC comic book. We are going back to uh, 1994. There is no month, uh, yeah, no month on this one because this is a special one-shot type of deal. 1994 is the year. Original cover price is 4.95, and the creative team on this book is Mike W. Barr is the writer, Jerry Bingham is the artist and cover painter. And this is Batman in Darkest Night. Oh, God, you're right. (laughs) Oh, man, you did push my buttons. Well played, sir. Well played. Payback is a bitch, (laughs) my friend. Now, um, I'm going to go ahead and give the quick and dirty on this before we get into the actual discussion. First off, really, really, really nice cover. Although, I've got to say right out of the gate, ridiculous costume on the Batman here. Um, But we we will get into specifics of likes and dislikes here in just a moment. But the story starts off, and um, I'm not horribly familiar with Batman Year One just because I don't really like the story. Uh, I have read it. But I'm assuming that this story opens somewhere uh, in the midst of that because we see Bruce Wayne on death's doorstep, bloodied and battered. He's sitting in the library in Wayne Manor, and this is the night where the bat would smash through the window and give him the inspiration to become the Batman. But that does not happen. Instead, what does come through the window is a ghostly figure of Abin Sur, 
that summons him and says, Bruce Wayne, you have been chosen. And Abin Sur heals him, and Bruce is able to then get up and leave, and he goes outside where he and Alfred find Abin Sur's rocket crashed on the grounds of Wayne Manor. And Bruce goes in, has a little conversation with the dying Abin Sur. Sur leaves him the ring, and Wayne becomes Green Lantern, and he has the lantern power. And they bury the rocket ship and everything, and Wayne establishes his new headquarters in a cave underneath Wayne Manor. And we cut to a scene where Commissioner Gordon and his police force are at, I don't know if they give it a place, but basically it's like uh, Axis Chemical or something like that. Uh, Acme Chemical, they call it in this one, where the Red Hood and his men are having a, a standoff with the police when all of a sudden, Green Lantern shows up. Now, by this point, he has basically merged his Green Lantern. What it looks like, really, is it looks like Bruce Wayne wearing Hal Jordan's costume, except he has, like, Batman's cowl and cape added to it. So if you can picture that in your mind, that's pretty much what it looks like. And, and, And And you're able to stop laughing. Yeah, it's pretty freaking ridiculous. It's uh, It really does not look good. However, I think the art in the book is spectacular. It's, it, this is not a criticism of the art. It's simply a criticism of this amalgamation of the two costumes is completely and utterly ridiculous. It really just does not work. It doesn't look good. The color scheme is horrible. So anyway, he mops up the Red Hood gang and hands them over to po- the police And he unmasks the Red Hood. And this was one of my few criticisms with the book, was that I didn't like the fact that underneath the Red Hood is revealed to be the guy from The Killing Joke by Brian Boland. Because for one thing, I don't really like that book. I have to be honest (laughs) with you. I know people are going to (gasps) go, That's the greatest book in Batman story ever written! Yeah, whatever. Uh, You know, I, I just didn't like it. And I, I think the Joker works best when the Joker does not have an origin. When when there's no definitive origin, that there's a series of different stories out there, any one of which could be, but possibly none of them are, the real origin of the Joker. And having it revealed in this, that the, that the guy we see become the Joker in The Killing Joke really was the Joker, I think takes a, a hell of a lot away from that character. Anyway, so he flies off. And we've gotten a whole different vibe between Batman slash Green Lantern. I'm going to call him Bat Lantern for short. Between Bat Lantern and Commissioner Gordon. Gordon takes an instant dislike to Bat Lantern. He just doesn't dig the idea of vigilantes with that much power operating in his city. Meanwhile, back in the Batcave, Alfred is dusting the lantern when all of a sudden one of the big-headed blue guys comes out of it and summons... Bat Lantern to go deal with uh, another sector. And at first, Bruce Wayne's like, piss off, I got my own shit to worry about. And the Guardian tells him, you will do this. The problem in the other sector is a rogue Green Lantern, and we need you to go deal with him. So he goes, and of course the rogue Green Lantern is Sinestro. Yes. So he and Sinestro have this epic battle, which is pretty, pretty cool, pretty awesome. And at the end of it, he is able to nab Sinestro. He hands Sinestro's ring off to the woman, uh, Kat Matui, who will now be the lantern of that sector. 
and he takes Sinestro before the Guardians. They strip him of his power. They send him to Kord in the antimatter universe, where he's instantly handed a yellow power ring. Back in Gotham City, Batlantern tries his best to mend fences with Commissioner Gordon, and he asks Gordon for a favor if he can possibly find out the identity of the man who... Or, let me see, he actually he asked him for... He's looking for a gunman who was working the Park Road District about 25 years ago, and he gives a description of everything. But what he's looking for is he wants the identity of the killer of his parents. He wants to bring the guy to justice. And he and Gordon have another go-around, and Gordon really just tells him he doesn't trust him. He doesn't uh, trust anybody that has that much power and everything. And there's a very ominous moment where Bat Lantern tells him, Commissioner, I could make you help me. And I liked that. I thought that was kind of an interesting take that you yeah. see that the power is actually kind of corrupting Batman, you know, Bat, Bat Lantern, whatever the hell you want to call this guy. They never really give him, I, I think they just call him Green Lantern. But uh, I'll get back to that because the, the Batman motif in this is, is one of my sticking points. So Gordon does his best to play detective. He's, he's starting to figure out what's going on with the identity of this uh, gunman that Bat Lantern is looking for. When Sinestro shows up in his funky Ant Cord Universe uh, outfit with the yellow ring, he takes all the information that Gordon has been able to, uh, to put together so far about the guy that Bruce Wayne is looking for, and then he induces a heart attack in Commissioner Gordon and kills him. And we see Sinestro go to joe chill but this is an awesome panel where he winds up at joe chill's apartment or flat or whatever this is he's at and joe chill in his very first appearance in this book looks to me a hell of a lot like george bush it's really funny it looks like he's in bed with uh with rosie o'donnell too it's very funny oh 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 yeah it's pretty disturbing it's like that's that's like some fan fiction you don't want to read so <laughs> so joe chill answers the door And it's Bruce Wayne, like young Bruce Wayne, as he remembers him the night that he killed Wayne's parents. And it really freaks him out at first. And then the the boy mutates and turns into Sinestro. And it turns out it was just Sinestro screwing with him. And he steals Joe Chill's mind. He he basically does this very invasive mind probey kind of thing. And it steals his mind. And... The book goes off in some really strange directions at this point. We see the formation of uh, of Two-Face, of Sinestro become kind of a, an amalgamation of Sinestro and the Joker, which is very odd. And we see Catwoman basically become the star Sapphire, and they all battle Batman, and there's these, these big epic battles and everything. To make a long story short, in the end, what happens is... Because he's got such a vendetta against Bruce Wayne and Sinestro has basically created an army of the Batman's rogues gallery with a Green Lantern villain motif now laid on top of them, then the Guardians decide they're going to put together basically the Justice League. So they call forth uh, Clark Kent, who strangely for some reason is not yet Superman in this book. Um, they call forth Queen Hippolyta of the Amazons. They create the accident that turns Barry Allen into the Flash. And they bring them all together to help 
Bruce Wayne bring down Sinestro and, and his people. And at the very end of the story, they are all, you know, it's, it's now like the, the, a Green Lantern-powered Justice League is left on Earth to protect Earth while Bruce Wayne, as Bat-Lantern, flies off into space to pursue Sinestro. And that's basically where the story ends. And I gotta say, Mike, I, I don't know... Now, I have some serious problems with this. My, my biggest problem with this, I think this should have been like a mini-series or maybe even... Maybe just like oh, a two-part no. thing. Because I, I think too much happens in one book and it, it, it messes up the pacing of it. I think if they'd have just slowed down and taken a little more time to establish characters and and tell the story rather than cram it all into one one shot, it would have flowed a lot better. But I think the art is really nice. I think the concept is actually pretty cool. But my problem with it, where, where it kind of goes from... Because I think the first half of it is really excellent. I was really digging it. But where it kind of... I hesitate to say jump the shark, but where it went down a peg definitely was where Sinestro steals Joe Chill's mind. And I thought that was going somewhere. But what ends up happening is very much like when the parasite tried to tap into that dude's mind on Superman, the animated series, and then they ended up having a war for parasite's mind. Basically it's the same kind of thing that happens here is, Sinestro taps into Joe Chill's mind, and then the next thing you know, both personalities are stuck in Sinestro, warring for dominance, and he becomes this weird, like, Sinestro dressed as the Joker dude, and it didn't make any sense. I never got that part of it. But beyond that, beyond some problems with the Justice League, and the Justice League, as powered by Green Lantern rings, their, their outfits look terrible, too. Beyond that, I, I kind of liked it. I don't know that I, after I finished it, it, it ends very much on a cliffhanger. I was like, nah, I didn't like it enough to want to continue on. But like I said, if they had broken this up a little bit and told the story at a more leisurely pace, I think they were going somewhere. I, I think it had potential. Now I want to know, what is your beef with this book? <laughs> My beef is, is, I think this is the dark side of Elseworlds, where... Somebody has an idea, and and most of the Elseworlds really revolve around Batman for some reason. Yeah. If you really look at the total number of Elseworlds, a lot of them are Batman-related. Right. I don't think Batman as a character and Green Lantern as a character and concept really mesh all that well. Uh, You know, I see where they were trying to go, but they went in so many bizarre fan fiction directions with this book. Which is, I, I think, my be- main beef is it feels it feels like fan fiction. It feels like somebody had this really great idea. They always feel the need to include the villains from both characters, and sometimes that just don't, just doesn't work. Right. But it's that Justice League at the end that just bugs me. Yeah. That everything has to come from the Green Lanterns, and I hate. Hate the fact that when we see Superman for the first time or Clark Kent, he's like sitting in dirty overalls eating pie. In yeah, front of he's the a television. Hill, he's a hillbilly. He's got a great big hero sandwich and a cup of coffee. It looks like coffee, and he's got muddy overalls on and he's watching television. I'm thinking, wait a minute, Superman comes first. And yeah. I don't care what you know <laughs> exactly. era you're talking about. Superman comes first. Why is he still hillbilly Clark Kent? 
why has he not become Superman by this point? Doesn't he have like really great powers anyways? I mean, it's just it's just uh, I just that's what I kind of what kind of bugged me is that it's just like Batman is the only hero in this universe, or Green Bat Lantern is the only hero. Right, and you know it's kind of sad that the people that brought us uh, Birth of the Demon and Son of the Demon brought us this. So, uh, I, I will I playing devil's advocate because I just I, you know part of what the setup was is I'm just trying to wind you up on this, but I didn't hate it. I mean, I I, I thought it had. Here's the problem: is I think it has great potential, but it just kind of goes. It doesn't do a whole lot with the potential because. Up to about the midway point, where you're really starting to get some serious conflict between Bat Lantern and the Guardians, and Bat Lantern and Commissioner Gordon, which I loved, by the way. I liked seeing them as adversaries. I thought that was a great twist on the on the Batman legend. My problem with this is what should have happened, in my opinion, he should have gone bad. That would have been a much okay. better story if he was given the... the it, Bat, imagine Batman given the Green Lantern power, and now he can really wage the war he's always wanted to wage against crime, and the Guardians being like, this is not why we gave you the power, which is what happens in the beginning of this book. The Guardians are very much like, you're using our power for your personal vendetta, and that's not what we gave you for. Now go out to Sector 2815 or whatever the hell it was, and deal with this other problem. And he's basically like, screw you assholes, I'm dealing with shit here, send somebody else. And like, we can't send somebody else because the the lantern of that section is the guy we want you to go after. So yeah. that's why he goes. But I liked that, that moment in the, in the book showed me the potential of where this story could have gone, which was him just saying, no, I've got the power, I'm keeping it, I'm waging my war with it. And then somebody, whether it's Gordon whether it's the fellow Lanterns, whether it's the Guardians, whether it's Superman, somebody has to deal with Batman corrupted by the power of Green Lantern. I think that could have been a hell of a lot better story. I still think that could be a good story. Probably. I just I just never liked the costume, too. It just, just yeah, the costume is awful. He, he looks more like, um, like Dr. Midnight than he does either mm-hmm. Batman. Green Lantern, which, you know, that's not not a knock against Dr. Midnight. He just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And I mean, if he's got the power of Green Lantern, and the bat never smashed through the window to give him the, you know, I will take, a, you know, the image of a bat moment that, you know, from the classic origin, then why the hell does he add, you know, the very next time we see him after he gets the ring, he suddenly has Batman's cape and cowl on. Why? Why Why did he adopt that? He never got the inspirational moment to to take the image of a bat. It doesn't make any sense. I wasn't even really all that thrilled with uh, when Batman got the Green Lantern ring in that issue of Green Lantern. Or what? No, it was the, uh, sorry, never mind. The yellow ring? Yeah, when the yellow ring. See, I thought of that as I was reading this. I kind of... I liked that, and I almost wonder if that happened as sort of a half-ass nod back to this. Because <laughs> I, th- I think that works better. I, I, I would almost wonder if the person, whoever wrote that, Jeff Johns or whoever, maybe read this and had the same reaction that, wow, you know, what if Batman got that power and it corrupted him? Because, you know, he's offered the yellow ring 
in that story, which is much more uh, of a corrupting type of power. Yes. I, I like that. I, I like that because Batman, you know, he does have that dark side, obviously, and he does walk that line every single night he goes out and does his thing. So I like that idea that, that given ultimate power, you know, what might Batman do with it? I think there's, I think there's a lot of potential in a story like that. I really do. I don't necessarily like Batman mixed with the cosmic, but if you're going to do it, that'd be an interesting way to go about it. I think. Oh yeah. I mean, I just, it's just, it's just not a book I've ever really cared for. I read it once and I'm like, wow, this is why not all Elseworlds concepts are worth exploring. Right. Right. Well, it's definitely not like the best Elseworlds I ever read. I thought it was interesting. The The best thing about it though, honestly, is uh, Jerry Bingham, you know, once again, delivers a, a really solid book. I really like his art a lot. And, uh, as a matter of fact, I toyed with the concept of, of getting him in on this, but I thought that was too much ganging up on you and, uh, <laughs> and, and too much of an ambush. Hey, Mike, so. I brought the artist of the book here. Why don't you tell him? Yeah. Tell, tell him to his face, Mike. Tell him you hate <laughs> his project to his face, dude. But no, I'm, I'm but kidding. That wouldn't make me look like a douche at all. <laughs> I think would be my assessment for that one. <laughs> it was it was okay up until about the midway point. So now, yes, now is the big one. Yeah, we go to the Incredible Hulk, as we have been covering over the last couple of issues, number three sixteen, which was John Byrne's third issue on the title. Got this beautiful cover of the Bi-Coastal Avengers with Hercules, Namor, Wonder Man, and Iron Man all going after the Hulk as Bruce Banner fights for his life. So, you know, I have one of the direct market books, and I can tell that because it has Spider-Man in the barcode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and do not too. The, and not the barcode. So this, title, this issue is titled Battleground. Uh, it's written and penciled by John Byrne with additional inks. So I'm assuming background inks, because that's usually what Keith Williams did Mm -hmm. for Burn on these. Still edited by Denny O'Neill. And we see She-Hulk bursting into a room saying she wants to know where Bruce Banner is, and if she doesn't find out, she's going to put a bunch of people in the hospital. And someone's like, "Uh, you're you're in a hospital. (laughs) So at least the trip would be short. So the doctor comes up to talk to her, the doctor's like, well, that's a redundant statement if I've ever heard one. And, uh, you know, who are you? Are you the president of the Bruce Banner fan club? Because this was the time that She-Hulk was stuck as She-Hulk and very happy about it. Look, dressed very stylishly, too. And she's like, look, I got a message that Bruce Banner was here. And the doctor's like, I didn't authorize that. And that's when Betty Ross steps forward and said, I called you. You are the closest living relative to Bruce and we have to make a decision that could mean life or a living death for Bruce Banner. So we cut to Diane Bellamy, who is covering the Hulk's rampage as he is tearing up yet another town. She talks about the fact that Doc Samson has been on the case too. And suddenly the West Coast Avengers show up. Iron Man and Wonder Man. Wonder Man go in for the attack. We get a couple pages of a pretty awesome fight scene where they're trying to take the Hulk down, and it's just not going their way. 
the Hulk is completely savage. You know, they realize this. Iron Man's like, we've been pulling our punches. We've got to step up our game. And that's when the Hulk attacks again and starts <laughs> tossing them around like they're freaking rag dolls. <laughs> Leading Wonder Wonder Man to say, Lord, I wonder what the poor people are doing for fun. <laughs> so, back at the hospital, the doctor explains that uh, he has a new procedure that can bring Bruce Banner out of the deep coma state he's in. Bruce has retreated so far into his mind that he is basically dying because he is retreating from the problems of his life. You know, for being the Hulk all those years, it created these barriers in his in his head, and he's just basically in the back corner of one, curled up in the fetal position, probably sobbing to himself and asking where his mother is. And this doctor has this great procedure that will either bring him out of it or basically put him into a vegetative state for the rest of his life. So we cut back to the Hulk about to pound on Iron Man when Hercules and Namor show up. And they start pounding on the guy. Which, again, really doesn't go well for them either. The Hulk is just completely off his nut. So (laughs) we we cut back to She-Hulk who has to make this decision whether or not to go through this procedure and she talks to Betty Ross about it. And this is the first time Betty and She-Hulk have actually met. And she goes through her origin where Bruce Banner had come to her to see, you know, how legally responsible he is for the Hulk's actions, not knowing that Jennifer had gotten in trouble with a hood named Nicholas Trask who tries to kill her and he Bruce Banner is forced to do a blood transfusion because as it is revealed here, did you know that Bruce originally studied to be a medical doctor. And I think this has a lot to do with the fact that when the She-Hulk first appeared, the TV show was really popular. Right. And they threw that in there, not thinking that Bruce wasn't a medical doctor. So once again, Byrne fixes a continuity error. And and the She-Hulk is just completely torn about what decision to make. So we cut back to the battle where Leonard Sampson, in a really ugly new outfit... He stole it from Khan. <laughs> Shows up and knocks knocks the Avengers around, saying, you know, the Hulk's mind, mine. Hercules sees this happening and goes, oh crap, people are beating up on my friends, and goes to fight Doc Samson, and they all leave the Hulk alone. Because <laughs> that's what you want to do to the rampaging beast. And he kind of wanders off. Doc Samson fights them a little more. And finally, he convinces them that he needs to be the one to go after the Hulk. And Hercules sees exactly what's going on. He's like, this is a matter of honor. We should give Doc Samson a chance. And Iron Man's like, okay, you've got a shot, but this isn't free. You've got a timetable. If you can't bring him in, we're going to. So She-Hulk, back at the hospital, decides to go through the procedure... And they inject Bruce with a compound called 87HB, which is a controlled hallucinogen, similar to the others used in the treatments of inhibited, inhibited, I can't say that word. Inhibited. Inhibited psychic. Inhibited. Inhibited. And for a couple tense moments, they don't know what's going to happen. And finally, Bruce comes out of his coma. And that's the end. Aww. Well, that's not the end. There's a there's a <laughs> Betty page here 
with John Byrne, uh, Denny O'Neill, and I don't know who that other guy yeah, is. Yeah, they call him Don, and he's okay. not in the credits anywhere. I don't know who this Don guy is. Who are having a conference with a guy in a very, very ugly Hulk suit. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> It's the same Hulk suit that was uh, at the Spider-Man wedding. Yeah. And the Hulk gets testy because they talk about the Hulk going on a senseless rampage, and he takes exception to this because all of his rampages uh, make perfect sense. <laughs> the writer for the text on this was Mike Carlin, by the yeah. way, which, which I kind of liked. But they, they did this every once in a while. In fact, they had an entire Fumetti special. Yeah. But this was a lot of uh, punchy, punchy run, run, as my friend Thomas DJ would say. It's it, it's basically a good example to not only have some pathos with you know She-Hulk struggling with her decision to to whether or not to have Bruce go through this procedure, which I kind of liked because she is his closest living relative, and I like John Byrne drawing She-Hulk. So. Mm-hmm. That opening splash of her walking in when her shirt is undone to basically her belly button and she's got no bra and yeah i like i like john burns women though, though basically if you if you colored her white uh it would and gave her black hair it would be wonder woman but uh, yeah pretty much uh I, I am going to point out one ad because the ads in this aren't really all that spectacular you got more quick gobot ads you got the comic books for sale ads there's a star comics ad on the yeah. inside cover and it's it's introducing Misty, who's this soap opera character in this, dressed like uh, Dorothy dressed Gale. like Dorothy Gale from from the Wizard of Oz. And she goes, "Oh my!" And is it me, or does like Lionel look like he's holding that sword like it's his wang? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I suppose he is. <laughs> I'm going to yell thunder, thunder, thundercats with you tonight. <laughs> It's just creepy because they're just staring at her. And it's like, oh god, what's what's I don't want to see the after effects of this, especially with the care bears watching. So Well that one care bear looks like he just got caught looking up her dress because he's shrugging and holding his hands up like, What? What? <laughs> no, I I mean it was a good issue. I I, 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 oh, I it's liked- a fantastic issue, man. Uh Burns' take on on the West Coast Avengers are, and the East Coast Avengers are great. I love the fact that Hercules shows up. The art's a little wonky in places. On page 17, uh, I don't know why we're seeing so much of Doc Samson's teeth in that picture, but it looks kind of weird. But but he makes a really good point. You know, Iron Man's like, you know, we're the only ones, or Namor goes, you know, we're the only ones that can take on the Hulk and deal with them. And he's like, are you, Fishman? Are you? And it cuts to the next page, which is this huge panel of destruction. Right. Like, yeah, you've been doing a real good job of it. Well, Byrne does. I mean, I think the art in this is fantastic. I love seeing Burns take on the Silver Centurion armored mm-hmm. Iron Man. I think that's great because that's my favorite version of Iron Man. But, you know, not only does he have stock faces and, and stock poses, but if you look at the very first panel on page 12 where the Hulk is backhanding Namor and Namor's flying into something, that position that Namor's got in that is exactly the same position we would see uh, Superman do when Bizarro knocks him through the wall of the Daily Planet and into that, what is it, like, cigarette truck or something in Superman in Man of Steel number five. Yeah, it's exactly the same, so. 
But I will say this, his Hulk is extremely savage. Oh yeah. This is not the classic Hulk at all. Every every picture of this guy, he is just he is just irrationally angry. It's it's kind of awesome. I've never liked the purple trunks look though. As of opposed to like ripped up pants type. I of thing. like the ripped up pants. I don't like the speedo. Yeah. Uh, I just I, I I understand why writers do it because drawing ripped up pants for twenty two pages must be really annoying. <laughs> Yeah, it does, but it does make more sense. I mean, he does look a little bit ridiculous. Because ultimately, if this is nothing but a mindless, savage animal, then he'd probably be naked, you know? Which would be a little weird, you know? <laughs> but somehow, I think that monster, being in a ripped-up pair of pants and looking more like your traditional monster, like Frankenstein or something would work better than your big savage monster and then he's got a pair of swim trunks on. Yeah, it, it does. It looks a little... It's a little silly, but... Man, I just... I, I can't get past... I like the art in this. I'm a big fan of comic book fights when they're completely over the top. Yeah. Which is what this is. I mean, they have leveled this town. I mean, they yes, throw they buildings and cars and all kinds of shit. I mean, there's... I mean, there's massive, massive destruction in this. And I like that. I think, you know, I think that's what I come to a comic book fight. You know, when it's a, when it's a fight between titans, that's the kind of level of, of destruction. That's the level I want to see them fighting at, you know? And these, these are the heavy hitters of both, uh, of both coasts of Avengers. Right. So, you know, Iron Man really goes into it. I love one. I, I I think I've said this before. I love this Wonder Man costume. Mm-hmm. It is my yes. absolute favorite Wonder Man costume. Yeah, and I like. I just like seeing Hercules because I think he's a fun character. Mm-hmm. And burn drawing Namor. I was I was uh, I was a big fan of the first like twenty five or so issues of his Namor the Submariner book. Yeah. Uh, which which actually reminds me, Namor on the cover of his first issue looks like in the same position as that uh, Avengers West Coast number 50. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and the only reason I really put those two together is, do you have Les Daniels' Marvel Five Fabulous Decades of the World's Greatest Comics book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when they get to like the more present day stuff, they have all of those like a bunch of covers together, and that Namor and that Avengers West Coast are put side by side, <laughs> and that is when I first wanted to read both of those. Oh, cool! It's like oh, oh those those look awesome. It's John Byrne. <laughs> Love John Byrne. Well, is that about all we got for this one? That's all I got. All right, cool. Well, thanks for joining us, guys, and be sure to come back and uh, join us next week. We'll uh, have a couple more random books, and we'll also be covering Incredible Hulk 317. In the meantime, you can join us over at Tales of the Justice Society of America, which will uh, have a new episode out in just a couple of days, so listen for that. Yay! Whoa, hold on there, listener, before you go. Hi guys, Scott here for one last bit of late-breaking news. If you're anywhere nearby to Atlanta, Georgia, then be sure to get your ass to the Atlanta Comic Convention on February 7th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Michael Bailey and I will be attending, and we would love to meet some of our listeners there. That's the one-day show, Sunday, February 7th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. in Atlanta, Georgia, and you can find details, including directions, 
at www.atlantacomicconvention, all one word, dot com. And tell them you heard about it from us, okay? Hope to see you guys there. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 